When I was five years old, I walked into a massive building holding my mom's hand. I wasn't sure what to expect. As I walked through the door, I was struck by what I saw. I looked up to the second floor catwalk connected by two large staircases and between the wrought iron railing, I saw children of all ages in wheelchairs. Instead of a hospital, the inside of this building looked more like a huge home. My mom reminds me of where we were. It's a center for the disabled children and they were between two months to probably 16. These children, she explained, needed residential care treatment. Some were blind, others were deaf. Still, others suffered from genetic diseases that left them in unresponsive vegetative states. No child at the center could walk and feeding tubes were frequently used. My mom told me of a three-month-old baby whose head was the size of a five-year-old's because it was filled with water. At the time, she worked at the center during the week, and on some weekends she took me along. Here she is again explaining what I did when I went with her. You will be following me between the room and handing, you know, you hand me the diapers or bottle of milk. The details of what we did at each visit are a blur. The effect it had on me, however, left a very strong imprint. I asked my mom what she remembers about my experience. Here's what she had to say. You loved it, actually. You loved it. And I don't remember telling me, Mom, when are we going to go home? It was like you did your shift and you're coming home with me. And I remember the best part when we had to walk to the uh, bus station from the center. I want to say half a mile. And there was a place uh, like ice cream. And I will always buy you ice cream and before we take the bus and go home. So it was a treat for you, actually. <laughs> it was an enormous treat, and I remember loving it. Immensely, in fact. Even though I don't remember all the details of what I did while working with these fragile children, I remember the feelings I had for all of them. It was this relatively strange feeling that made me both sad and hopeful at the same time. I'm not exactly sure what I'd call those feelings today. Empathy, compassion, or maybe just simply love. Whether or not I was developmentally able to understand their circumstances when I was five years old or not, all I know now is that I got more from them than what I could have ever possibly given them. Again, even though my memories faint about the work itself, the children left a really strong mark. It was such a strong mark, in fact, that it changed the course of my life. It made me realize that helping other people was a really good thing. And it felt good. Right, even. I'm Widian Nicola, and I'm a clinical social worker. I've worked with addicts struggling to get clean, adolescents and young adults trying to figure out where they fit in in the world, elderly men and women attempting to make sense of their losses, undocumented immigrants grasping for change, and so many others. Throughout these past 15 years, I've heard stories that most people wouldn't believe. Stories of abuse, neglect, despair, and utter desperation. As with most things, though, there was always another side to see. I also heard within those stories tales of resilience and overwhelming hope, and witnessed joy and unrelenting perseverance. As a five-year-old, I understood little about the world. Many years later, I find myself still baffled by how people connect, make meaning, and overcome adversity. 
As a trained social worker, it's my job to try and understand people and the lived human experience. I'm also fully aware that things aren't as black and white as they seem. In fact, more often than not, human experience is muddled and lies in the gray areas. I question what makes people connect or not. I wonder how people grieve, forgive, reconcile. I'm curious about what makes parents go to extreme lengths for their children or the opposite. Why do people migrate? Why do parents neglect their kids? Why do people turn to drugs and alcohol? And what about racism, xenophobia, and homophobia? How do we make sense of all these phenomenons? If you're looking for the simple answers to these questions, you're in the wrong place. The answers aren't here. My experience as a social worker has led me to only one simple answer, and that is, there are no finalities. And if you've come to hear the stories often unheard in mainstream media to make sense of them in your own way, then you've come to the right place. The one thing that we do have to merely begin understanding one another is listening. The Lived Experience Project aims to transcend the political to arrive at the personal. Working from stories to compassionate activism, this season, we begin with stories of undocumented immigrants. In this season's five episodes, we tackle one of the most pressing humanitarian issues of our time. We take on the task of presenting the oral histories of undocumented immigrants in a new way. A way, I hope, that will illuminate the profound human experience, instill hope, and ignite change. In every episode of the Lived Experience Project, we will explore stories that address what it means to be human. Esteeming the conscious lived experience, our series will not offer a political solution, as one might reasonably expect. Instead, what follows is a necessarily detailed and subjective exploration of this pressing, relevant, and significant global conversation. We begin tonight with stunning breaking news as a major crisis at our southern border is unfolding. Debates over immigration have dominated the media once again this week. The Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security announced yesterday that the Obama administration would review the deportation cases of some 300,000 undocumented immigrants. She climbed the ranks of Wall Street's most elite bank, Goldman Sachs, making over 300 grand a year as a vice president. But she did it all, get this, as an undocumented immigrant. A lot of people are upset because he used the, the term anchor babies to describe U.S.-born children of illegal immigrants. My fellow Americans, tonight I'd like to talk with you about immigration. I'm an undocumented immigrant from Nigeria. I'm an undocumented immigrant from Brazil. I'm an undocumented immigrant from Germany. From Mexico. From Peru. From Brazil. Israel. From Romania. From Mexico. Unauthorized immigration has a long history in the U.S. The dawn of a newly established colony fueled migration from all over Europe. As an irresistible attraction, this promised land, as they called it, became the destination of choice for thousands of people. In fact, one could argue that as early as 1607, the British settlers were the first undocumented immigrants in America. Still, as the number of foreigners increased, so did anti-immigration legislation based on more than just nationality. For example, the Quakers, a religious group, were prohibited from settling in the new colony. 
Whippings, imprisonment, banishment, and in a few instances, capital punishment, were the order of the day. In spite of these penalties, they continued to immigrate. Countless legislative measures designed to prevent the arrival of foreigners to the states have been enacted in the last 250 years, leaving, at different times, massive populations in limbo of becoming naturalized citizens. Take, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that specifically restricted citizenship to Chinese men, leaving them with little chance of reuniting with their wives. Legislation like the Immigration Act of 1903, or what was commonly known as the Anarchist Exclusion Act, excluded immigrants based on political ideology. The Immigration Act of 1917 denied entry to immigrants from Eastern Asia and the Pacific Islands. Between 1929 and 1936, the Mexican Reparation Act forced immigrants in the U.S. back to Mexico. Relatively recently, the Immigration Act of 1990 increased the limit on legal immigration and revised grounds for exclusion and deportation. Further still, eight months after the 9-11 attacks, President George Bush signed the Enhanced Border Security and Visa Entry Reform Act of 2002 in an effort to control U.S. borders against the threat of foreign terrorism. Although people today face different challenges than those of over 250 years ago, many of the reasons why people made such risky voyages to the New World during colonial times echo the reasons that push people to immigrate to the U.S. in modern times. The effects of restrictive immigration legislation reveal similar outcomes, too. While no legislation has been comprehensive enough to address the current undocumented immigration issue, proponents have maintained hope. In 2007, negotiations for Senate Bill 1384, commonly known as the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Act of 2007, materialized. At a press conference surrounded by reporters and photojournalists, President Bush announces the news about the bill's negotiations. Secretary Gutierrez and Secretary Chertoff have just briefed me about the um, negotiations on the Comprehensive Immigration Bill that just concluded in the Senate. After weeks of long work, these negotiations came to a successful conclusion. You know, as I reflect upon this important accomplishment, important first step toward a comprehensive immigration bill, it reminds me of how much the Americans appreciate uh, the fact that uh, uh, that we can work together. When we work together, that they they, they, they they see positive things. Immigration is a tough issue for a lot of Americans. It's a, the agreement reached today is one that'll help enforce our borders, but equally importantly, it'll treat people with respect. The bill, which would have provided legal status and a path to citizenship for millions of people, was never voted on. What's left are more than 11 million undocumented immigrants residing in the U.S. Thousands have been deported and families divided. Given this list of exclusionary immigration legislation, proponents of reform call for an improvement in the current policies that would offer a pathway to citizenship for these 11 million people. Opponents of reform, however, argue that undocumented immigrants have broken the law and should be deported. In some media outlets, they're regarded as criminals, terrorists, and social and economic burdens. Standing at a busy intersection, holding up a sign with the words, An illegal killed my son. Here, a woman shares her opinion. 
My son, almost three years ago, was, or almost four years ago, was taking his girlfriend home on a motorcycle when an illegal that was came to this country in 95 was driving illegally while working Ill illegally delivering newspapers, made an illegal left-hand turn into my son on his motorcycle. After four weeks of hell and my son being in a coma, he ultimately passed. Three to 5,000 Americans are killed every year. That's eight to 13 Americans die every single day at the direct hands of an illegal. And that's not even bringing up the rapes and the molestations and the... And the Assaults the, and burglary. Exactly. And then now ra raping animals, you know, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. And, and they're allowed to be free. And if you think about um, how did Rome go down, Rome went down because of illegals. If you look around, you know, pretty much if you're not brown in San Diego, you're a minority. While immigration has played a massive role in shaping an optimistic American identity, flipping through the news channels reveals a discourse that takes a contrasted, less than enthusiastic stance. The political discourse, too, remains fixated on the economic impacts of immigrants on jobs and health care. As terms like illegal and anchor babies emphasize the immigrants' existence as criminal, these types of references perpetuate a highly simplistic view of the experience and the notion that the fundamental nature of the issue is political rather than personal. As we just heard, the woman changes the adjective illegal into a noun, but leaves out the word commonly paired with it, immigrants. The significance of her use of just illegals reveals an underlying logic that undocumented immigrants are not people, but rather they're criminals who should be punished. This type of language misses the opportunity to hear a different perspective that would maintain a sense of a person's humanity. There have always been migrants, people who choose to leave their homes in search of a different life. Not unlike refugees who are forced to flee their home countries, many undocumented immigrants leave to escape similar life-threatening conditions like poverty, violence, and natural disasters. Still, many others leave their homes because of unemployment and a desire to pursue prosperity and all that comes with the promise of the American dream. At its most basic level, one could argue that there isn't much of a difference between a refugee and many undocumented immigrants. Both are motivated by a need for safety and security. Many of the reasons that influence their respective migration are similar, as are the pull factors that result in their relocation. According to the UN Refugee Agency, there are currently 19 million refugees looking for a place where they can live in safety. Likewise, many undocumented immigrants living in the United States are also looking for a place where they too can live in safety. Whether arriving as a refugee or otherwise, migration is not exclusive to the US. As media outlets broadcast stories of the massive influx of refugees and immigrants around the world, it's increasingly apparent that this is a global issue. In fact, a Vox Media report reveals that the deadliest border crossing in the world is the Mediterranean Sea between Africa and Europe, and the first four months of 2015 were the most dangerous yet, with nearly 2,000 fatalities through May. Like those at the U.S.-Mexican border, migrants from the Middle East and Africa go to extremely dangerous lengths to escape violence, including hiring the equivalent of what we might call coyotes here in the U.S. This coerced labor then becomes a form of human trafficking. According to the International Labor Organization, a single 20-meter fishing boat 
can reportedly earn a smuggler up to $1.5 million. Sadly, many of these stories, along with these dangerous conditions, are ignored until tragedy strikes. Just listen to this European news report. As news broke of another migrant ship sinking off the Greek island of Rhodes, this Italian patrol ship docks in Malta. The corpses of 24 people offloaded by search and rescue workers. The migrants had desperately fled fighting in Libya, packed into rickety boats, often at gunpoint by human traffickers, to cross the Mediterranean. The International Organization for Migration said at least 900 migrants had died before this weekend. There's tremendous value in considering the shared national responses to these human tragedies. Whether it's refugees or undocumented immigrants, there is something more that accounts for the fundamental issues underlying migration, both what catalyzes people to leave their homes and the respective response of those receiving them, no matter the country. Because of the powerful impacts of violence and poverty, families continue to flee from things that threaten their survival. So perhaps a large part of what the world is experiencing through migration goes beyond families wanting a quote, better life, and more about families just wanting to live. Listen, for example, to the striking similarities between the stories of a young Somalian teen interviewed by Amnesty International and the undocumented immigrant children from Honduras interviewed by CBS Evening News. These were taken thousands of miles apart within a similar time frame. When I was a child, I used to dream about becoming the president of Somalia. Now all I think about is if I will live or die. In Libya, problems started when they fought with NATO, and the chaos escalated, and the police began looting and killing. They beat me with an iron bar. I was left there and went into a coma. I was in hospital for five years, learning how to walk again. And then I came to Shucha camp. Life here is difficult. It's a life full of problems, and I have to be patient. I am living the life of a refugee. I'm someone who can't go back to their own country. My mother is worried about me and my situation. I'd like to meet her in a European country that would accept me for resettlement. War is not easy. It's beyond imagination. I've seen the worst of it and I don't want to see any more. I fled Somalia, but the pain is still with me. I can't go home. Now listen for the similarities in the stories of these young immigrant kids from Honduras. How old are you? 17. 17. How old are you? 15. 15. And how old are you? 12. Their family paid smugglers $9,000 to bring them from Honduras to the Texas border. They crossed the Rio Grande River alone in January. What was the worst part about the journey here for you? To crossing the river. The boys are from San Pedro Sula, the city with the highest murder rate in the world. They say they had to escape gangs that shot their older brother. You were afraid you were going to get killed? See. Yes, they had already told me that they were going to kill me. The boys flagged down a border patrol agent once they entered the U.S. They took our shoes and they put us in the car. 
Were you ever afraid when you were coming this way? Yes, he said, there are people that have come here to die in the desert. You come with fear. Is it hard to talk about these things? Yes, it's hard. Hard seems an underestimation of these experiences. Children are often the first victims of conflict, and here, it's impossible to miss the striking similarities between these two interviews. Both fled extreme violence and both left their homes in search of refuge. The only difference is how they were referred to in the interview. The Somalian teen, a refugee, and the Honduran teens, illegal. What's dangerous about the divisive illegal immigrant or illegal alien labels are the many negative connotations attached to them that further politicizes the issue rather than personalizes it. Because language is powerful and has political implications, the term illegal perpetuates negative stereotypes and criminalizes individuals rather than their actions. Unfortunately, the stress placed by some media outlets' narrow coverage and divisive language distracts us from gaining an understanding of the immigrants' rich lived experience. It eclipses empathy, mutual understanding, and ultimately, concern for the seemingly distant and dissimilar other. What's ironic is that the mechanisms that distract us from seeing the resemblance between the other and ourselves are also the means by which those on the receiving end of migration cope with the perceived danger posed by the new arrivals. In the end, being human reveals not just our differences, but also our essential likenesses. Take, for example, the stories from Time magazine of undocumented immigrants Mandeep, Gabby, and Tulu, Three Young Women in Search of Connection. My name is Gabby Pacheco. I'm 27 years old. I was born in Guayaquil, Ecuador, but I was raised in the Sunshine State in Miami, Florida. I think that uh, becoming a U.S. citizen, uh, being recognized as an American, because I feel already am that, it's important uh, to be able to feel whole, to be able to feel realized, and to be able to do the things that I've been wanting uh, to do for a very long time, uh, and to be able to give back and serve my country. My name is Mandeep Chahal. I was six years old when I came to the United States from India. Uh, my family and I have been in the Bay Area ever since. I've spent you know, most of my life here. All of my friends are here. My family is here. All of the meaningful connections, experiences that I've had have been in the United States. And this is where I want to stay. This is where I want to have my life. And this is where I want to give back to a community that's given me so much. My name is Tolu Olubumi. I'm 31 years old. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, and grew up in Maryland. I want to be an American citizen because it's who I am. I've grown up here. Uh, I am who I am today because of the sum total of my experiences here. For me, U.S. citizenship would be an outward manifestation of an inward truth. The longing for meaningful connections, wholeness, realization, manifesting outwardly inner truths, and a desire to give back to community endorses a much deeper view of our shared human nature, one that far surpasses the binaries that keep people divided. This point is none more evident than in the selfless work my own immigrant mom did in her adopted country, which she brought with her to the U.S. over 25 years ago. This form of connection, which I'm calling empathy, has no borders. 
It's not political. It does not judge, undermine, take, divide, or categorize. Instead, its generative, patient understanding and abundant qualities preserves human connection. Given that each of us emerges as relational persons from the earliest encounters and interactions we have, it's only fitting that we approach the issue of undocumented immigration through the lens of relationality and human connection. To do otherwise is to miss fundamental truths about our need for safety and security, those things that motivate migrants to move, and those on the receiving end to either welcome or resist the new arrivals. Years ago, I was introduced to a poem by the 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi called The Guest House. I remember the first time I heard it. I was sitting across from one of my mentors who told me to close my eyes as I listened. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and attend them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house clean of all its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Greet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. As the words echoed long after I heard the poem, I was mesmerized. I wondered how far permissiveness, compassion, attunement, and the simplicity of the present moment could go in this being human experience. I'd never really imagined that welcoming all things within myself, the comfortable and uncomfortable, could be a guide to clarity. And in the case of this pressing humanitarian issue, I wonder if its messiness and the potentially undesirable and complicated feelings that come with it could actually offer clarity. To find this clarity, at least to some degree, as you continue to listen to this series, I invite you to consider a few thoughts. First, place yourself in the narratives you'll be hearing. Be the main person speaking, the person's mother, father, husband, wife, child, friend, coworker. Be anyone you want to be. Just be in the story. Second, think of these narratives as a camera lens that zooms into just one person's experience. Then, when the episode is finished and the lens recedes, consider how this one story weaves into the larger narrative. Do this for each episode. Third, try and make sense of or find meaning in what you hear. While I offer some thoughts about each narrative, this format is designed for all forms of connection. Connection of ideas, feelings, thoughts, and meaning about the specific problem of American popular discourse on immigration. Sit with the tensions that arise. Celebrate the undesirable feelings that knock at your door about the story itself, the form, the world, and where you fit into it all. 
Finally, remain curious. If a story seems incomplete, that's because the very nature of narrative is complexity. Inherent in it is perspective. Many perspectives, perhaps even endless perspectives. What's your take? Through your life lens, how do you interpret its meaning? As we engage with these voices rarely heard in the media, I hope they'll help you trace underlying truths to enrich the landscape of this undocumented immigrant conversation.